Come, Lord Jesus, be our guest, and let these words be blessed by you. In these words, may your living word might be heard, a word that brings life, that brings peace, the word that beats swords into plowshares. Amen. So today, as you may know, is the first Sunday in the season of Advent. Of course, it's the season of preparation for Christmas. You've all started at least making your lists, if not buying things. The coming of the Christ child in Bethlehem. This may have, therefore, left you confused by the beginning of the service when we sang songs like, Lo, he comes with clouds descending, and behold, he comes, riding on the clouds, shining like the sun at the trumpet's call. My guess is that neither of these tunes are on your Advent playlist, but they should be. During Advent, we get ready for Christmas, the first coming of Christ. It's true. But we sing songs like this, and we hear readings like this, because in church tradition, Advent is also the season of preparation for the second coming of Christ, the second coming at the end of time. And I don't think it would be much of a stretch to say that many of us are kind of freaked out by these readings. I mean, here Jesus warns of the coming of the Son of Man at the end of time and compares it to the story of Noah. The end will come suddenly, he says, like a flash flood. Some will get caught up in the deluge while others will make it through. So keep awake, he says. Get ready because you don't want to be caught unawares. Now in the popular Christian imagination, the apocalyptic texts like these are often used as warnings to non-believers. And there is often a sense of delight when these texts are shared with non-believers. Finally, all them sinners are going to get their just desserts and we're going to get our reward. When we think end of the world, it's almost always an image of terror, of fire, flame, maybe something that akin to global warming may be. Now, there's certainly judgment here and in these texts. There's no need to deny that. But when we read these texts as only containing judgment, or at least judgment of other people, we miss the true meaning and purpose of them. Now, today's text from the Old Testament's book of Isaiah is one of the best known and most compelling portions of the Bible out there, and that's an end times text, too. But here we have this end times image that is almost exclusively good news. It's good news from the beginning to the end. In the days to come, it says, in the days to come, the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established as the highest of mountains. Not only will the mountain be raised above all of the other hills and mountains around it, all nations shall stream to it. Isaiah is talking about the Jerusalem temple, the temple that sits on a tiny little hill inside the city. 
This temple is where Isaiah's people believe they encounter the very presence of Yahweh, the creator of the universe. Here Isaiah sees this tiny little hill, a tiny dot on the world landscape. He sees it extend all the way up to the skies. It touches the clouds. It branches the realms of heaven and earth. Heaven and earth come together on this holy mountain. Isaiah sees, sees the temple become the center of the universe, it says. And he sees all the countries and all the peoples on earth stream into the city. I mean, imagine an Olympics opening ceremony, if you will, of statesmen and citizens from all over the world. China, Japan, Canada, Nigeria, Afghanistan, and even the Caliphate of ISIS. Israelis and Palestinians, indigenous people and settlers, friends, Romans, countrymen, they're all there. They're all, all of humanity is lining up at this temple queue waiting to get in. I mean, imagine if Sundays at church were like that. Everyone's lined up, but they aren't camping overnight for the next iPhone. They aren't chomping at the bit to, rep to, uh, to represent their economic interests on the global market. What they're gathering for, it says, is an education. They're gathering for divine edification. Many people shall come, says Isaiah. Many people shall come and say, let us go up to the house or to the mountain of the Lord that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion, the temple mount, shall show, go forth instruction and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. So here the nations are making a pilgrimage to get schooled in the ways of the God of Israel. And it's not just head knowledge, ideas. Before, their desks were lined up in the classroom of idolatry. They took their marching orders from the idols of war, violence, greed, and human sacrifice, but now they're showing up at the heavenly dojo to learn how to rightly live at the feet of Yahweh, the divine sensei, the divine master. And inside, we discover that the temple's not just a school, in the temple, it says, God shall judge between the nations and shall arbitrate for many peoples. The temple doubles as a court specializing in mediating international disputes, with God sitting as the one and only supreme court justice. And wouldn't you know, God is good at this judging thing, too. Because as a result of God's rulings, it says, the nations shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Based on the Lord's shrewd diplomacy, Isaiah sees the world's weapons are piled up in a heap, melted down and recycled into stuff you can use to grow food. From every nation, from the smallest switchblade of the street punk to the AK-47 of the soldier, from roadside bombs to tanks, battleships, and bunker buster missiles, all tossed in the furnace of Zion. And out the other side, 
pops buckets, combines, children's toys, and MRI machines. And after their munitions are dumped, wouldn't you know it says, nation shall not lift sword against nation, and neither shall they learn war any more. So not only are their weapons melted in the furnace of divine grace, their hearts are melted in that same furnace too. Now it may seem like something of a cliche, but Isaiah's end times vision is a vision of world peace. You can see why the centerpiece in the garden of the United Nations building is the statue of the slide above and on the cover of your bulletins. This statue, Let Us Beat Swords into Plowshares, by Russian artist Yevgeny Vududichich. I should have practiced this before I... Anyway. Anyway, that guy. Uh, was gifted by the Soviet Union to the UN at the height of Cold War tensions and international conflict. There has to be a better way, says the statue. And Isaiah says that not only has there be a better way, this is the ultimate outcome of history. Under God's guidance, all disputes will be ended, while the implements of destruction transform into tools of creation and rep reparation. And the very combat instinct itself will be tutored out of the human heart, permanently. All at that mountain of the Lord's house, under the tutelage of Yahweh, the crack, the fissure in human nature, the source of war and violence that will finally and be irreversibly healed, weeded out forever and for good. It's a promise. It's a promise. According to Isaiah, what the Bible means by end times and second coming is far from a spiritual downer of epic proportions. Because it says at the end, the purpose, the final destiny of human life according to scripture and tradition is what the great poet John Milton called a perpetual peace. Human life healed and restored, lived as intended, not just for individuals, but for peoples, nations, countries, and civilizations. It says sword into plowshares is our future and our destiny. It's not a bummer for the world. In fact, it might be the best thing about Christianity there is God's future. It's a promise, says Isaiah, and Jesus says it's on the way, so keep awake, otherwise you might miss it. You might miss it. Now, one obvious objection to this idea is that if we have this hope for the future, why do anything? Why do anything at all? This, of course, was Karl Marx, the great theorist of revolutions, major criticism of religion, that religion is the opiate of the masses. The promise of a brighter future, he said, is like a painkiller 
It may make the toughness of life bearable, but it ultimately immobilizes us. It keeps us from making the world better. Because if God's got it all in hand in the end, why not just kick back, have a few drinks, and let history run its course? Why not? Now, it could be the case, and there is always the danger that the promise of a future can sort of dull our senses. But you know, that doesn't happen in the Bible very much. When somebody gets a vision of the future, they get energized. It doesn't happen here with Isaiah. The vision actually has the opposite effect. Because after presenting us with this tremendous vision of a world reconciled, he doesn't say, don't worry, be happy. Or he doesn't say, it's, it's all too much, just stick to your personal spiritual development and, uh, you know, maybe it'll turn out fine in the end. No. O house of Jacob, he says. O house of Jacob, Israel, God's people, my people, he says, come. Come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Isaiah sees God's future as a light to guide our steps even when the world's darkness is overwhelming. It inspires when peacekeeping seems pointless, when a better world seems like no more than a pleasant dream. The light shines in the darkness and sets a path. Richard Topping, and his beautiful facade is on the screen there, I love Please put this quote beside anything that Richard Topping is on. And then I actually Googled Richard Topping amphetamine because I couldn't uh, remember where he said this. But anyway. Richard Topping, principal of Vancouver School of Theology, who's preached here on several occasions, we know him well, likes to say that hope stokes action. Rather than the opiate of the masses, Richard likes to say that hope is the amphetamine of Christian faith. It inspires, it animates, it enlivens. Here Isaiah hands us a spiritual upper and says, let us walk in the light of the Lord. There's something about Christian hope that energizes rather than anesthetizes. Now, there are plenty of stories about this throughout Christian history from the Bible along backwards, but there's a story about the Reverend Calvin Butts, pastor of the Abyssinian Baptist Church, a historically black church in Harlem. Located north of 125th Street in New York City, it sits smack dab in a metaphorical war zone of modern civilization. On adjacent blocks sit burned-out buildings, pawn shops, boarded up storefronts and empty grocery stores, while a parade of prostitutes and crack dealers processes down one end of the street to the other as soon as the lights go off. Now, where anybody else would have had the good sense to pack up shop and move somewhere peaceful, Abyssinian Baptist Church decided to stay put and keep at it. They organized a bank for people with bad credit and an 
a care school program for elementary school kids. They founded a redevelopment agency and they conducted boycotts against overpriced supermarkets. A reporter from the New York Times once interviewed Pastor Butts, and this is the question that he asked. You're doing some good things here, he said, or the, the reporter said. You're doing some good things here, but it's hard to see what difference any of this is making. It's hard to see what difference any of this is making. Same streets, same day, same world. It's hard to see what difference any of this makes, so what keeps you folks going, they asked. Considering the shape of the neighborhood, it looked like a losing battle. Butts' answer, though, was pure gospel gold. We've read the Bible, he said. We've read the Bible, and we know how it ends. We just aren't at the end yet. We've read the Bible, and we know how it ends. We just aren't at the end yet. We aren't at the end times yet. This is a preacher, and this is a church that has read Isaiah. In a neighborhood overrun by swords, this is a community that keeps hammering plowshares. They know the ending, and as a result, they haven't gone to sleep, but they've been woken up for good. Rather than retreating from trouble, they've planted their feet firmly in the dirt, continuing to act courageously and compassionately here and now, even though there's no guarantee of success, at least by earthly measurements. Every Sunday, week after week, they pilgrim to the temple of the Lord to learn the ways of Jesus, the Prince of Peace, so they may walk in his paths. This is a community on whom the light of the Lord has shined. And rather than laying down and giving in, they've stood tall and just kept on walking in the irresistible radiance of its beauty. They continue to walk in the light of the Lord. Now, like I said, at the beginning of the sermon, we hear end times and second coming and see violence and terror. But what God shows Isaiah, what God shows us, is whatever the second coming's about, it has something to do with swords and plowshares, with the transformation of human life and society into the peaceable image of Christ. And the good news is that this is our future and this is our destiny. We are not fated to sin and self-destruction as individuals or as a species. Not through the triumph of the human spirit, not due to the inevitability of progress, but through the hidden power, love, and presence of the living God a light hidden to the eyes of the world, but one that illuminates the hearts and paths of those who 
believe. It's this hope that drives Pastor Butts and the dogged determination of Abyssinian Baptist Church. It's the hope that fuels our own soup kitchen, outreach ministries, and our hunger for social justice, reconciliation, and peace between the nations. It's this hope that propels forgiveness over retribution, mercy over sacrifice, love over hate, and our still firm conviction that the transformation of the human heart is possible even in the face of all evidence to the contrary. And maybe this hope might be the thing that draws you out of darkness and fear and despair into that same marvelous light this very day. Because we've read the Bible. We've read Isaiah. We've read Matthew. We know how the story ends, and it's not done yet. So, brothers and sisters, let's do what the man says. Let us walk in the light of the Lord. Let us walk in the light of the Lord, indeed. Amen.